Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're in the great room getting coffee, why don't you come and join us? If you're in the foyer, you can come gather with us. If you're with us online, good morning. We're glad that you're here. And so we're going to begin our service this morning with a call to worship. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to start off in Psalm 37. And before we get there, um, I think it's important to recognize that today is September 12th, 2021, right? You kind of lose, lose track of time at a certain point. And that means that, that 20 years ago today, our nation, if you're an American or if you grew up around here and maybe you're my age or a little bit older, it had this tremendous sense of communal unity. And I think if we're realistic and honest, we can recognize that that's not where we're at right now. That what was driving us maybe 20 years ago, rage, fear, terror, vengeance, all of those things have the power to unify, but not in a way that brings lasting flourishing. And while we saw cities crumble, it made us recognize how fragile we are. And I believe makes us long for a city that will never crumble, that that is where we will ultimately find peace, that what will ultimately unify us is not our greatest fears, but it's true peace that comes from the Prince of Peace, and that is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our King, and He's King over history. He was King over history 20 years ago, and He's King over history today. So as we begin our service, I want to open with Psalm 37, because I think it speaks to the heart of maybe a soul or souls that are a bit of conflict and a bit of frustration that point us to where true peace is. It says this, Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers will be cut off from the land. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek or the humble or the afflicted shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. God, you are the Prince of Peace. You are the King of Kings. Lord, and whatever gives us vexation or frustration, whatever injustice or anger we have, Lord, let, let us set that aside. Let us wait patiently for you. God, we desperately desire you to act in our lives and in our world. But Lord, first, act in our hearts to stir up worship for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, will you go ahead and stand with me? Sing, oh Lord, my God. Oh Lord, my God. When I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou
And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. When Christ shall come, when Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God. my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, and sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on Some can bid me then depart. No tongue can bid me then depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Word I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because a sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me right, behold him there him there the river 
perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace one in himself i cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior God, with Christ my Savior and my God. To sing one in Himself. One in Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is here with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior. our heads with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We get to come together, gather as your body, and Lord, worship you and hear your word. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive that this morning, that, Lord, our our disposition would be humble. And Father, we just remember you, not only today, but every day of the week. We pray this that you may be glorified in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so what that means is as we gather together, we open up God's Word, and we see how God's story impacts our story. And so last week, we began a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, a, a wisdom book, we believe, written by King Solomon at the end of his reign to impart wisdom for life to, to a people who are searching for meaning. And, and we call this series Vapor because he uses this term 38 times throughout the book to talk about vapor, vanity, futility, how, how we want to find meaning, we want to find purpose, even happiness maybe, maybe even joy. But when we try to hold on to it, it's like, it's like grasping the mist. It's like chasing after the wind. Yeah, you know it's there, but if you try to hold on to it, it's, it's so fleeting. It's ultimately, the word means without substance. And yet we do believe that we can and should find meaning under the sun. And so we use that term, under the sun, to talk about our life experience and the world that we live in apart from and distinct from the God who created everything. So there's a lot talked about in this book that, that seems a bit discouraging, that seems a bit disorienting, um, that seems uh, at times um, maybe even to lead us to despondence, where, where we can find a pessimistic path. And last week when we started in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we were like, what's the point of life if it just has all these unending cycles, if work just seems unprofitable, if ultimately uh, I'm going to end up being unremembered? And we said, well, no. Under the sun, apart from God, if there's no God, then yeah, there's not going to be a lot of meaning. But so we said we need to shift our gaze above the sun to the one who created all things. And that because God created life, because God placed us in this world, because God uh, put us in the relationships that we have, in the time and place in which we live, then that doesn't mean that nothing matters because, yes, you are going to die. It doesn't mean that nothing matters because, you know, all this will end up fading away at some point. It's because there is a God who's placed you here that everything matters. Everything that we do has purpose and meaning. And so, as we struggle to, to still wrap our heads around what does life look like in, in a world that maybe doesn't recognize the Lord or, or, or doesn't, doesn't understand that there's a God overall, uh, where are we going to find refuge and meaning? And so, um, as we move ahead in this series, the next three weeks, so this week and the next two, 
uh, the preacher, that's what Ecclesiastes means, it means a sermon, means the preacher, rather, that Solomon preaching this sermon of wisdom, he's going to go down three different distinct paths to say, hey, I've pursued what each of these paths look like apart from God, and I've taken them to their fullest and to their ultimate conclusion. And so in the next three weeks, we're going to look at self-indulgence. Like, what if we just, what if we just enjoy it? If we just try to find some fun. We're going to look at work. What about accomplishment? What about, what about creating? What about that significance? And today, we're going to look at wisdom, knowledge, experience. What if I just had more of that? Maybe things would go better. And so if you have your Bibles, I uh, hope you do, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We also, if you are new here or weren't here last week, we have these Ecclesiastes scripture journals uh, out on the table there. It's just the book of Ecclesiastes with some place to take notes. And then um, we've put together for this series a discipleship guide for you to use individually or while you're here during the week. And then when we launch community groups, uh, fellowship groups in the next couple weeks, we'll be studying through it there. So make sure to grab those resources. Those are free. We just want to get God's word and good discipleship tools in your hand. So here we are, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Today we're going to be in verses 12 through 18. I'm going to break it up into some small sections and we're going to talk about it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12, 13 right here. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven, or another way of saying that is under the sun. And so we're going to stop here. This is, like we said, Solomon. He is the son of David, the first, or rather second great king of Israel, and, and he um, is the only king besides David who actually ruled over God's people in Israel in the city of Jerusalem. His was the only generation besides David that experienced any level of peace and unity. Because very quickly, a generation came and went, and and if you don't know, God's people fell into great disunity. Only took 20, 30 years, right, before what unified them divided them. And so he said he's the only king besides David, um, uh, who's ruled in Jerusalem. And, and he began his reign, he's a young man, and he had an earnestness to worship God properly. Yet if you look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 3 and 4, 5, all that, it talks about his reign. He, he didn't start out great, right? He said he's a young buck, he's been given tons of authority. Think about like first round NBA draft pick coming straight out of high school, given millions and millions of dollars, not a recipe for great decisions, right? And so he says, God, if I'm going to lead your people, if I'm going to actually flourish in helping others flourish, I mean, awesome that he has that perspective, then God, I'm going to need some wisdom. I'm going to need some knowledge. I'm going to need some experience that far exceeds my years. And so he found himself in this place of worship before the Lord um, uh, where he is just trying to appeal to God And in this moment, God actually meets him. God actually shows up. And what happens to Solomon, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, I'll read it real quickly. Um, But what happens to Solomon is, if you know the movie The Matrix, anybody know know the movie The Matrix, right? Neo at the beginning, he kind of feels like he knows the world, but maybe there's something a a bit off, and and then he's met by Morpheus, who gives him what? The option, two pills. Blue pill, just kind of keep going, or red pill, scales fall off, and you can see it all. Solomon's about to get red-pilled by the Lord right here in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. Here's the narrative of it. Um, uh, uh, It says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in in faithfulness and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. If you know David's story, that's a bit glossing over. David was also an imperfect guy, but that's okay. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. See, God stayed faithful even when David didn't. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people." 
that I might discern between good and evil. For it's able to govern this, or who is able to govern your great people? And this pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said, because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life of your enemies, um, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, verse 12, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning might, so that none like you who's been before you and none shall arise after you. And later he says he's also given him riches and honor. I mean, this is amazing. Right? Wouldn't we love to see this prayer answered in our day, in our leaders right now? Right? Just all the wisdom in the world. And, and what I love about David, or rather Solomon's life, this is a huge moment in Solomon's life. And, and it's not just like, hey, cool story about Solomon. This impacts and informs us today right now because Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, a, a wisdom book. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon uh, about marriage and, and, and the beauty of that relationship. And he wrote Ecclesiastes. And so when we read those books, we're not like, well, there's kind of like this Jewish Benjamin Franklin a few, you know, thousand years ago. They had some pithy sayings, and, and maybe they apply today. No, because we know the origin story right here in 1 Kings chapter 3, we know that this wasn't just some stuff he came up with. This is Holy Spirit-inspired, otherworldly wisdom, knowledge, and experience. So when we read Proverbs, when we read Song of Solomon, we, we read today in Ecclesiastes, yes, Solomon was a human author, but it's the Holy Spirit that helped him write it. And so this isn't just some, some good idea or good advice. This is a good word from a good God. And so Solomon asked for this gift, and it starts from a place of humility, right? He was smart enough to know what he doesn't know. Most of us think that we either know it all or don't know anything. But we rarely start from a place of humility of, I need to grow here. I need to learn here. In fact, I need wisdom. And what I love is that it's not just like, hey, wisdom so that you can live a better life, right? If you ever heard of Dave Ramsey on the radio, he's like, yeah, save your money, live like no one else now so that later you can live like no one else and you can have a big lake house and have a big boat and have all the things. Um, like, okay, that's fine and great. I would love all those things. But here Solomon says, I need wisdom, not for me, but to prosper and flourish God's people around me because they need leadership. They need direction. They need guidance. He knew what he didn't know. And so he says, God, if I'm going to govern well, if I'm going to lead well, if I'm going to be faithful as a governmental leader of your people, then I need to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, wisdom and folly. Later, Solomon would write Proverbs 8, verses 15 through 17, and he's talking about wisdom, and he says this, By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and nobles, and all who govern justly. He's talking about wisdom. Wisdom again says in verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. This is a personification of wisdom saying, hey, if you want some wisdom, like I'm here. If you desire Wisdom, then, then you're going to get some. And what's great about this is, this is echoed in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 5, uh, the, the half-brother of Jesus um, pens this in the Holy Spirit, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so Solomon here begins this pursuit, he says, of wisdom, of knowledge, of experience. Back to Ecclesiastes verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I applied my heart. Okay, that's not the actual beat. Heart in the Old Testament is this idea of the center of your very being. That which produces life in you and through you, uh, that which is just actively a part of your life, the deep center of your emotional, spiritual, and intellectual life. He says, in my whole being, I'm going to pursue knowledge and wisdom. His pursuit's sincere, and it's comprehensive as well, right? All the wisdom that's done under heaven. Give, give, give it all to me, right? Just, just like, like Neo in the Matrix again, right? I, I know Kung Fu. Right? He wants all the knowledge, all the wisdom. Some of y'all need to watch The Matrix. Okay, all right, we'll keep going on. 
New movie coming out. Just saw it this week. I'm getting so jazzed about it. Talked about it with uh, my wife and, and uh, one of my friends and his wife, and she's like, you guys are nerds. I was like, cool, you're not invited. We'll go, we'll go see the movie ourselves. All right. Okay, moving on. Because he pursues wisdom, all of it under the sun, but then also uses that to see how all worldly wisdom apart from God might not lead to where we think it does. And so he says this at the end of verse 13 through 15. He says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. There's that word, vapor, okay, right? Lack of substance, futile. And a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. See, we should know that all wisdom comes from the Lord. It is a gift from God to his people for life and flourishing. And as we saw in James, you know, God, God will give wisdom. And, and we believe here that the Bible teaches this doctrine called common grace. Meaning whether you know the Lord or love the Lord, like there's just aspects of your life that are going to flourish and go well because God loves you. And, and he just, he gives knowledge and wisdom and insight at times regardless of your doctrinal statement or whether you believe in him or not. Like you get to enjoy a sunset whether you're an atheist or whether you believe there's a creator. I believe you can enjoy it better when you believe there's a creator and that there's an artist behind it all. But God gives you enjoyment. And so all wisdom is from the Lord. If it's true, it's from God. And so what Solomon's doing here is as he talks about wisdom, he's talking about a limited perspective of what people can learn about the world and knowledge and human experience without God. Like, you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle if you're trying to navigate relationships without the God who created relationships, if you're trying to navigate creation without the creator who made all things, trying to find purpose without the God who gives purpose, and certainly trying to experience joy without the God who designed joy. So there's something missing. And so while there's common grace, there can be godly principles in false religions, right? You're like, no, no, I, there's some truth over here. Yeah, I, I learned from this shaman over here. It was super, super white. Yeah, okay, cool. It can still be true. Hey, I, man, I just love me some Jordan Peterson, man. He's got 12 rules for life. Oh, can I introduce you to someone that had 10 rules for life of which we weren't able to follow? Right? So like, don't get me wrong, like, I'm actually praying for Jordan Peterson. It seems like actually God's, like, doing something in his life. But, like, you know, psychology, philosophy, like, it, let's not, let's not poo-poo those or put those down. Medical science, yes and amen. Like, there is wisdom and knowledge that God gives regardless of doctrinal statement. However, it has a limit. It has a limit to what it's able to do. So the question is not whether there's any wisdom under the sun. It's how far can that wisdom take us? Will that ultimately lead to greater life? Will it lead to everlasting life? Will it lead to joy? Or will it lead to greater vexation and greater frustration? Will that wisdom or knowledge or experience save? Does it point us to the Creator? And because we're Christians, we ask, does it point us back to Jesus? Who we'll see at the end of this is the embodiment of God's wisdom. So our hope cannot be in the gift of wisdom alone, but it needs to be in the gift giver. And so Solomon gives out three different verdicts for what it looks like to pursue wisdom full throttle without the God who made wisdom. And he says this, verdict number one in verse 13, an unhappy business. So life is an unhappy business. Why, why is it unhappy? Well, we read last week in Romans 8.20 that all of life has been subject to futility or, or vanity. It means that there's this inescapable fact that all that we do is going to ultimately be burdensome at different points. That's the business aspect of it. And so why did God make it this way? says, you know, God has given us this unhappy business. Okay, let's not misunderstand God. The reason that there's aspects of life that just are, are subject to fertility, that, that have toil and all those different things, isn't because God designed this little game for us to try to, try to win. He, like God didn't like put us in an escape room and say, figure it out. No, it, it's, it's actually a consequence of sin. See, God created the world and he made it what? He made it good. And then sin enters the world through rejection of God's wisdom, God's instruction, God's purpose and knowledge. And in this pursuit of wisdom or knowledge on its own, hey, I want to know good, I want to know evil too, it led to greater suffering. 
It led to all things, including our very lives and souls, at times plodding along through an unhappy business. Life apart from God, the God who's of life, of joy, and purpose. Right? If you, you divorce yourself from God, you shouldn't expect that life should be effortless and peaceful if he's the source of those things. And we believe that he is. And so we are restless in the world because the world's no longer a place that's defined by peace. And so when he uses this phrase, unhappy, I mean, that's an okay translation. Like, I'm not a big Hebrew scholar, but what's interesting, like, I read unhappy, and I'm like, well, anyway, it's a little wah-wah sometimes, no big deal. The word actually in Hebrew is the word ra, and it translates across the Bible, across the Old Testament, as evil, harm, wicked, ugly, adversity, so it's not just like, oh, it kind of puts you in a bad mood sometime. It is a moral judgment that there is aspects of life that are just so impacted by sin that it's more like affliction than affluence. That it's more like futility than flourishing. And so even in the midst of this unhappy business, this, this evil life of ours, separation from God leading to futility, you're like, that's a, that's a bad road. Well, actually, no. See, in the midst of that separation from God that leads to futility and frustration is actually hope. Because we find and come to the end of ourselves where this just isn't working anymore. And it makes us look beyond what we can see. It makes us desire more than we can experience. To know more than we know. God has made us restless without him in this life so that we can find our rest in him. Augustine said something similar to that. This great theologian. And so under heaven, meaning like apart from God, under the sun, at times, altruistic meaning is going to ring a little bit hollow. Some of you guys are familiar with the, uh, the great scientist Stephen Hawking, right? He, he suffered um, a great disease in his life that let him immobile. He, he couldn't speak except kind of through that, that robot voice. And he, and he just died, I believe, a year or two ago. And Stephen Hawking says this. He was a, famous for being a, an atheist and not believing there's a God. He says, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet on a very average star. But we can understand the universe, and that makes us something very special. See, again, there's some truth in that. He was a brilliant man who had a broken body, and I pray not a lost soul. I don't know what God did at the end of his life. But he understands that there's something unique about humanity. Right? Like, you're different than a badger. Okay, you're, you're different than a duck. You're different than I'm running out of mascots. Okay, I think they won last yesterday. My, my mascot didn't win, so I'm sad. Okay. We're unique, distinct people. They actually want meaning, want purpose, want satisfaction. And so, like Stephen Hawking, he looks at life and says it's unhappy, but he just fails to see that there's a creator behind the creation. He's like, oh, we can understand the universe. Really? Apart from the author of it, the designer of it, the creator of it, the one whose word is so powerful, there was nothing, and then God said, let there be, and then there was something? That's amazing. That should give us some, some purpose, some understanding. There's a reason that we're all here. Verdict number two. He says, under the sun is striving after the wind. And if you notice in the text today, past this point, God disappears and is no longer mentioned. Because Solomon's talking about this world apart from God. The preacher says, he looks comprehensively at all the pursuits of the world under the sun, and that they're futile. They're just chasing after the wind, right? Think about like herding cats, or maybe you've served in kids ministry at some point, right? You, you know, and maybe you should, right? Okay, sorry, I'll just keep plugging that until we get up, the class is full. But it, it's more than just like, oh, things are kind of chaotic. Later we see there's this deeper vexation and affliction of spirit. It's not just that our efforts are unsuccessful. It's a level of frustration that sears our heart. We want to know. We want to have certainty to solutions. Um, we want to we have all of our questions answered. We think that if we just know it all, that's going to solve it all. We want to be satisfied. Questions do cry out for answers. Um, 
At one point, um, the Unitarian Church here in Marysville, um, right on um, uh, 4th Street there, they, they don't believe in the God of the Bible, they don't worship Jesus, and, and, uh, but their reader board that they put out there, we don't give you answers, we help you ask questions. I got questions about that, right? Like, don't questions cry out for answers? I don't know how you came in today, but, but if we just came in here and said, anyway, we don't know anything, figure it out. If you found something that works for you, that's great. Go along about your life. Like, you can get that anywhere. You don't need the creator of the universe to tell you that, right? It, questions cry out for answers. Proverbs 8.35, Solomon again, talking about wisdom. Whoever finds me, meaning wisdom, answers, finds life and obtains favor in the Lord. Almost like there's a simple equation of, of knowledge, wisdom in the Lord actually impacts life, leads to greater life. Another great atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, said that human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but is simply callous, indifferent to all suffering and lacking all purpose. Man, wouldn't you love to just get coffee with these guys? So they just seem like they'd be great. I totally would want them to like plan like a, like a wedding shower or like anything fun at all, right? But see, this is where it goes. You, you divorce yourself from the creator and the wise just, nah. He goes on to say this. I'm against religion. To be clear, so is Jesus, but we'll get, that, that's a whole other topic. Because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. See, the religion's different than the gospel. Religion is you do these things and then you'll get to God. The gospel is you can't do it. God's come to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus was toughest on the religious people more than anyone else. And so he's saying somehow that, that religion is just trying to find those, those systems of easy answers. And sometimes, I mean, we do this as the church. Sometimes Christians do this like, you know, you got a hard question? Sorry, just have faith. Like, no, like we said at the beginning of this series, this is a place we can wrestle with some rough questions. And I'll tell you, it's okay to say we don't have the answer to that. But we should be able to provide answers for that which God has given us to point to where meaning and purpose in life comes from. See, the preacher, Solomon, is not satisfied, and it's not because, like Richard Dawkins says, like, well, anyway, he's just not curious about the world. No, the, the preacher says, I've seen it all under the sun. And nothing apart from God satisfies. All wisdom, all knowledge. And so while we desire lasting gain, true satisfaction, and real progress in the world, we look close, but again, like he says, there's nothing to grasp. It's chasing after the wind. Verdict number three. That life is unfixable and uncountable. There are aspects of our world that are so broken and so bent out of shape that, that they just seem unfixable. It says, in Ecclesiastes 15, what crooked cannot be made straight, right? Things can't be fixed. We can't easily resolve them. And so there's, there's things that are ingrained into our soul, experiences that we've had, wounds that we've suffered, that, that I hate to break it to you, no amount of counseling or self-help books is going to solve it for you, if that's all there is. If it's not in somehow tied to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, it can soothe for a moment but it will not ultimately satisfy if it is just unpack your wounds, figure out some strategies for life, take a deep breath and move on. Hear me clearly. I am for therapy. Right now, twice a month, I think, is my current schedule. Okay? I am for reading to, to understand your story better, to understand how to navigate your life, to understand and unpack your traumas. But if that pursuit on its own is all there is, and it's not, it's not tied to the one who can ultimately make our path straight, then we're going to just keep walking with a limp over and over and over, and the pain is just going to increase, and our satisfaction is going to decrease. No amount of human effort can fix what has been broken in us apart from the Lord. In fact, later in Ecclesiastes 7, uh, chapter 7, Solomon says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Whoa, what if God has given you some of your wounds in, in a way to actually shape and inform your life so that you can be compassionate to others, so you can be empathetic to others, so you can serve others, so you can, I mean, God sent his son Jesus 
to, to suffer great affliction, to, to suffer great brokenness for the purposes of great redemption and restoration. And so we're like, hey, you know, I think I can just figure this out. I'll, I'll get fixed this way. And yet no matter how hard we try, there are aspects of our life that we just can't easily make sense of. And then, and then we start to look at the world and we start thinking we're straight, meaning like we can see and have the right perspective. Right? Raise your hand if you think you're an extremist. No, don't. You, don't, you won't because we're targeting you. Right? No. We all think we're moderate. We all think I'm, I'm balanced. No, I mean, hang out with me a little bit. I'm a little unbalanced sometimes, okay? Right? And so we think that we're straight. We think that we have the perfect perspective, and then we're trying to judge the rest of the world or judge uh, those around us, and we're like, we're like a ruler that's been all warped out of shape, and we're trying to draw a line with it, wondering why it keeps looking like this. Because we're bent out of shape. We're broken. And we look at the world around us thinking that we're perfect or that we've got the right perspective or that we can, if we just applied what we knew or if other people just knew what we knew, then it would all work out great. And, and there's something missing, he says. Because right, we, we, got, we got told this thing when we were younger, uh, depending on like, what schooling you were in, you can change the world. And, and now you're in your, your 20s, 30s, 40s or later, Maybe you're at the sunset of your life, and you're like, I don't think I changed it. If I did, I don't like it any better now. See, we were told that we could change the world, and yeah, there, there's some aspects of the truth, but, but you can only impact positively change to those around you as much as you've been changed by the Creator. The God who's begun a good work in you has changed and shaped you so that you can love and serve others around you. And so... When we're bent and broken, we can't make our path, path straight. Human culture is misdirected and incomplete. There is something missing. So if you find yourself 100% in line with everything that's happening in the world, know that the world's a bit crooked. That means you're a bit crooked too. There should be moments and times in life individually and looking at the story collectively that the frustration and rubbing and grinding happens because something that's bent and broken is trying to function when it should be smooth and straight. So we need to appeal to, pray to, call to the God who takes what is crooked and makes it straight. And so there's, there's times where we're pursuing and we're trying to live our lives and, and things just don't balance. It says, right, like what is lacking cannot be counted. Like, like, like you know, you built something from Ikea and you stayed married at the end of it, right? And, and you've got that and then there's that pile of stuff left, and you're like, I don't, I don't know. They said it was for safety, but I don't, I'm not going to bolt this bookshelf to the wall. You know, like, right, you find all the pieces, or, or worse, you're, you're trying to get it done. You're like, ooh, I need a few more of those little wooden pegs that supposedly hold stuff together with the glue. It's missing. It's not there. It can't just be, hey, get the Lego set of life, put it all together, and it's going to look nice. Something is missing we're going to be frustrated because any system under the sun that we encounter or question cannot answer the problems that it can't solve. Because if it's a broken system and it's played out to its full conclusion, then it's going to lead to some more brokenness, right? You take the pill, which, which then leads to, it solves this problem, but then it causes this side effects, which solves this problem, and, and now you're just on this new train, like, well, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll tax peop these people and do that, and that'll fix this. Oh, well, that causes this problem over here. And, and like, you know, they, right, economics, it all gets screwed up. Oh, you know what we'll do? We'll just, we'll just take out this country, and, and, and we'll fix it. And then, and then it doesn't end up being fixed. And it leads to all these other problems. And so he's saying there's aspects of life under the sun that because of sin and brokenness, there is brokenness. There is lack. There's something missing. So we've got to know where we're going to direct ourselves. Solomon wrote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and some of you know this, and, and it says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, right? We, that crooked perspective. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. 
And so you, you hear that and you read that. And, and, and you know, if you're uh, you know, one of God's people a, a, a thousand years before Jesus shows up, you're like, okay, cool. In all my ways, acknowledge him. Trust the Lord with all my heart. Don't trust myself. And then, and then straight paths, it'll go great. And you find yourself exhausted. And you find yourself disappointed again because I can't acknowledge God in all my ways. I lean on my own understanding a lot because it's the one that I got. And I don't acknowledge God in all my paths. And, and, and things don't always go straight. And so if you read that, and, and that, that is, I mean, as much as you can, do that, yes. Don't, like, don't hear me wrongly, like, don't follow the Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's what you came in for today, don't follow the Lord, right? No. There's something more missing, though. See, there's not good news in wisdom alone. It needs to be embodied. It needs to be lived out perfectly if it's going to work. Somebody's got to show up that did it all right. And so you fast forward to the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. There's this prophet, John the Baptist, and, and he's out there. He, he's, he's out in the wilderness, and, and he's telling everybody, hey, you need to come follow the Lord. You need to repent of sin. You need to um, you know, renounce all of those you know, underhanded ways. And then he says this, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And he says, the, this is uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 4. He says, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked like, shall be made straight. The rough places shall become level and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, God's the one that changes us. God's the one that shapes us. Faith in Jesus, following and trusting Jesus work in our place. That's where we experience rest. That was the wisdom of God to say, I know these people can't walk straight. I'll send my son Jesus who can. He'll walk straight perfectly for them. And as they follow him, their paths will be made straight. He will be the one that ultimately leads them home. All right, back to Ecclesiastes. We've got to keep moving along. Ecclesiastes 1, 16 and 17, he kind of doubles down on wisdom again. So he says this, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. Sounds a bit prideful, but we'll get there, okay? And my heart has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, perceiving that this also is striving after the wind. Okay, Solomon here actually isn't being prideful. Right? Um, when I was younger, I would go running around Green Lake in Seattle, uh, and I would pass a lot of people because I was young. And then I'd go into the office, and, and I'd tell people, literally, this is something I said, I wasn't following Jesus at the time, I would tell people, I'm the fastest man in all the land. Okay? That's pride. Okay? Now it hurts to walk. Literally. Just watch me after I get off, off stage. It's gimpy now. Okay? Solomon is not speaking with hyperbole. He is the wisest. He's been given it, like we said, downloaded from the Lord, right? He took the red pill. It's all downloaded. He's the wisest. Anyone you think you know that is wise is an idiot compared to Solomon. Anyone. And so that means that we've got this snobbery, right, that we think we know more than previous generations. Oh, wasn't that quaint? You believed that back then? We're enlightened now. No, Solomon was given all of it. Solomon was given all of it, and he says, as far, you can go as far down the path of wisdom you want. I've gone farther. So if you're thinking somehow, maybe Solomon just didn't pursue wisdom enough. Maybe if we wisen up, then we can figure it out. And he says, no, no, I've done it. I've done all of it. His wisdom and experience and knowledge are awe-inspiring. Real quick, those are three different things. Wisdom, experience, and knowledge. Right? You can, you can not know a lot, but be super wise meaning like how to, how to function in life and flourishing and, and not know like, you know, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, right? You know, or some other random fact. Conversely, you can know a lot, be super smart, not so wise. You can be really, really young and, and, and you got some wisdom maybe beyond your years. Maybe you got a lot of knowledge, you're super smart, that's awesome. But you haven't, like, like experience is wisdom applied. You haven't walked it out. Here Solomon says, no, no, I got all three. I got that trinity of wisdom, if you will, wisdom, experience, and knowledge. 
And you can read, I'm not going to read the text itself, but 1 Kings talks about this, chapter 10, how he had so much wisdom that, that um, wisdom actually became the great export of Israel. Right? So you think like, hey, we're Washington, we export apples and socialism. Um, you know, other states have other things, uh, right? And so for, for um, Israel, their great export to the rest of the known world at the time was wisdom. All the other leaders of the world looked at Solomon and said, that guy knows something. That guy's got wisdom. He's got experience. And it was so intoxicating and attractive that at one point um, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 4, the queen of Sheba shows up, and she's like, I've heard about this guy. I want to go meet him. Right? She swiped right, and she's like, let's go, let's go get on this date here. She shows up, and in chapter 10, it talks about the outworking of his wisdom leading to great flourishing and prosperity for all the people in the nation. It wasn't just like he's sitting in some think tank writing position papers. It's, that's an important thing too. If you do that, awesome. I'd love to read them. Okay, but he did it. He applied wisdom and knowledge and experience to create systems of flourishing uh, for God's people. She shows up and is like, whoa, joint looks nice. Like, this culture is pretty fantastic. In fact, she's so overwhelmed by it that in verse Five, it says, after seeing all of Solomon's wisdom applied, there was no more breath in her. Wisdom applied to its fullest took her breath away. And so she desired to know more about Solomon, and you know, we don't really know everything else that happened in this situation, but she said, your wisdom and, and prosperity has surpassed the reports that I've had. And so Solomon's wisdom and knowledge were absolutely legendary, but it also drove him because he's imperfect too, to say, I wonder if there's a little bit more. I wonder if God held out on me, right? That first question that Adam and Eve had, maybe God's holding out on us. You know, he's given us the knowledge of good, but maybe, maybe knowing evil would be good too. And so you can read in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon actually went and started to pursue wisdom and religions uh, that were not of the Lord. And this is where he says here later in life, I know evil too. I know folly, too. I know foolishness, too. Because and, and at certain points, we just think, you know what? If knowledge and wisdom isn't all it's cracked up to be, right? Ignorance is bliss. Maybe I can just go do all the fun stuff. Maybe I can just go pursue, you know, just, you know, eat, drink, and tomorrow we die, right? He says, no, it doesn't lead to anything more valuable. And so... Under the sun, apart from God, we find that the pursuit of wisdom isn't really worth it on its own. Instead, that pursuit, that desire for wisdom, knowledge, and experience just needs to be not to wisdom itself, but redirected to the one who gives us wisdom. Jeremiah 9 says it this way, verse 23 and 24. Let not the wise boast in his wisdom, but that he understands and knows me. Talking about the Lord. And so this last verse in Ecclesiastes he gives this conclusion to this pursuit of wisdom, and he says this in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Last week we said that there's definitely like some, some contradictions here in Ecclesiastes, some tension, some unresolved things. This is, this is one of those. In this sermon, wisdom is lifted up as a blessing, okay? Wisdom is a blessing, but he's shown that while it's valuable, it will fail to save us from the brokenness of the world. In fact, actually, we'll just, we'll just magnify it, right? Um, my heading here for Ecclesiastes um, uh, 118, I wrote, mo knowledge, mo problems, right? And we know this, right? That there's not always a more positive relationship to more wisdom and more knowledge leading to more joy. Sometimes we do think ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it actually is better not to know. As we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They knew good, and then they knew good and evil. And it went from paradise without shame with perfect purpose to shame, separation, and brokenness. Because evil added to good doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. And so we know grief. We know sorrow. We know all these things. And so the more we understand the world, the more we ache for something better. 
When our gaze is fixed downward to that which is under the sun, more knowledge cannot lead to more hope. It only leads to more discouragement and despair. And that's because I believe this fundamentally. That the human soul is not designed or made for us to bear knowledge of all the suffering in the world. And at this point, more than probably any other point in human history, we know so much more in the information age about suffering in the world. And so we get put on this constant hamster wheel of suffering, vexation, foolishness, folly from individuals, from government, from systems and structures. And it just, it leads us to, to great tragedy that we see and hear about suffering and tragedy and unrest in the globe and, and, and stuff we can't do anything about. And so our souls that were designed to go inward, outward, get reversed. So pain, suffering, toil that happens in the world, we get aware of it, we metabolize it into our souls in frustration and anger and pain and fear and worry and discord and all these things. And then we pour that out to the people around us in our relationships, in our families and in our communities and in our actions. And that's not the way our lives are supposed to work. Because even if you had all knowledge and wisdom and experience, like Solomon had, we get frustrated because we just don't have the capacity or the power to actually affect change. Your points of greatest frustration are when you feel like you know what's right that should happen and it doesn't happen because we're powerless. So we've got to ask ourselves, we need some good news here, guys. What's the practical answer? What's the theological answer? How, how can we live our lives in a, in a way that doesn't just lead us to greater despair? I believe step one is given in Proverbs 1, verse 7. In the ESV, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I love the message translation of this verse. Eugene Peterson, I love his translation. He says this, start with God. Start with God. The first step, he says, in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their nose at such wisdom and learning. I believe that's step one. Start with the Lord. Understand, yes, there is a God above. And then, and then practically, we need to reverse that flow from out to in. So rather than starting with what's wrong out here, we start with there's a God and he knows me and him. And so we start inward, we look upward, and then we live outward. We focus inward, look upward, and live outward. And this is so important to focus on wisdom and knowledge that comes from the Lord, that his experience and presence and peace and protection, we start with being filled. If you're a Christian, we say that means knowing who you are in Christ. That that which disquiets and unsettles your soul, Jesus has said, no, 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 I'm here to give you rest. That which burdens you, Jesus says, no, give me your burdens, I can carry them. That which makes you fearful and insecure, Jesus says, no, no, I, I, I've made you secure in me. So you start with who you are and your identity. And then you love and engage those who are closest to you. You serve and influence and lead and impact as much as you're able where you are able. Right? You get an announcement from the President of the United States, I, I can't do anything about that. You, you really can't either to a certain extent. But you can love your neighbor. You can love and lead your family. You can serve and engage here in the church. You can love and engage the community around us. Right? Uh, let God sort it out. And I don't, don't hear me wrongly. Don't disengage. But recognize what and where God has called you and who God has called you to love and serve and care, and, and yeah, at times influence. And then rest. Rest knowing that these small and big stories are part of the story that ends well, and that's why we look to Jesus. 
right? At any given moment, there are seven billion life stories that are all happening, each with tragedy and triumphs. And there are infinitely number of combinations of those life stories intersecting with one another. And then beyond that, there's systems and structures and geopolitical things happening, economics and all, the, all these different things that are happening. You can have all the wisdom and knowledge in the world. You're not going to fix those stories. But there is one who can. Even Solomon in all of his wisdom, his, he died and his reign ended. Right? We have his wisdom now that's great, but we don't have him actively working in the world. So we need to look to one better. And that's where we said last week that Ecclesiastes can't just be where we, where we stay. That Ecclesiastes is, is pavement on the way to Jesus and on the way to Jesus on the cross. And so while Solomon is a great example that we should learn from, and, and look around at the failure of others, don't do things that are foolish, right? But eventually, all of us uh, are, are going to need to have faith in one who is greater. And so Solomon is the son of David. Jesus is called the what? Son of David. That eternal king, right? We, we mourn and grieve because 20 years ago, we saw a city in, in crumbling from the attack of evil. And it makes us long for that city that endures forever. Jesus says, I will return and I will bring a new what? A new city. New heavens, new earth. Jesus himself says, yeah, you want wisdom of Solomon? That's great. Jesus is the better Solomon. Jesus says it in Matthew 12, 42. He says, the queen of the south will rise up. He's talking about that queen of Sheba. She will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She found the wisdom of Solomon so attractive, so, so mesmerizing, that it drew her to go on a great journey that led her to dwell with that wisdom personified. And Jesus says, you should want what she wants. You should want a place and people of flourishing. You should want to be with wisdom personified. And he says this at the end of verse 42. Behold, something or someone is greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said, hey, Solomon, please. I gave him his wisdom. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all the wisdom of God. It says all the divinity of God was pleased to dwell within Jesus Christ. And in his wisdom, in God's wisdom, in seeing the injustice of the world and the brokenness of your story and even your own personal sin, his answer wasn't wrath. His answer wasn't to wage a war against us, but was in fact to go about the unhappy business of life with those who are marginalized, with calling out those who are prideful or religious, living a perfect life we haven't lived, dying the death we all deserve for our sin. That's the wisdom of God? To bear defeat for us? To resurrect so that we can have promise and hope of new life now and forever? To create a new people who, yeah, are bent and broken. We're all bent and broken. And to begin to make us straight? Those of us who are dissatisfied to fill us with great satisfaction. Those of us who have great wounds to, to bear our wounds. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And then to create a new people. The Colossians 2 verse 3 discusses this way. It says, um, chapter 2 verse 2 and 3, that their hearts might be encouraged. A people being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, in Christ, we can have comfort that he will meet us in our afflictions and that our prayers for wisdom and guidance in this life are answered when we simply trust Jesus. Guys, our sermon's done, but before we transition to a time of worship, I, I just want to read over a, a prayer from this awesome book called Every Moment Holy. And um, 
this is a, just a great resource. It just kind of has these little liturgies for life and how to process different things. And in our staff meeting on, on Tuesday, um, Mel Matheson, who leads our kids' ministry that you guys should all serve in, um, she, uh, uh, we were talking about this text and the angst and vexation that I think we all have and share the more stuff that we are getting inundated with the world. And it's this awesome liturgy called A Liturgy for Those Who, rather, let me read it here, A Liturgy for Those Flooded by Too Much Information. That feel like you? Feels like me. So we actually, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes. I'm gonna read this over us, and know that we've actually printed off a hundred copies of this, so you can take this home with you, and and meditate on it and read it. But it, it says this, and let's let these words be a balm to us, a liturgy for those flooded by too much information. In a world so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O Lord, than we can rightly consider, of more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carried the full weight of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross, and you carry it still. When the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures, never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens, for our arms are too short. And our strength is too small. Justice and mercy, healing and redemption are your great labors. And yes, it is your good pleasure to accomplish such works through your people. But you've never asked any one of us to undertake more than your grace will enable us to fulfill. Guide us then from shutting down our empathy we're walling off our hearts because of the glut of unactionable misery that floods our awareness. You have many children in many places around this globe. Move each of our hearts to compassionately respond to those needs that intersect our actual lives. That in all places your body, meaning the church, might be actively addressing the pain and brokenness of this world. Each of us liberated and empowered by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your redemptive work assigned to us. Give us discernment, that means wisdom, in the face of troubling news reports. Give us discernment to know when to pray, when to speak out, when to act, and when to simply shut off our screens and our devices and to sit quietly in your presence, casting the burdens of this world on the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up.